0: Please keep your Bibles open to Ephesians 6. We're going to be looking at this great text over the next couple of Sundays. I would invite you, in fact encourage you, to, to read over it several times during the week to get the words resonating in your mind and in your thinking as we, as we looked at, at, at this fantastic, sacred, beautiful, inspiring text. But before we, uh, we get into the message for today, let's begin with a word of prayer and ask God to bless us. Father, we are so overwhelmed by a sense of Your presence this morning. How blessed it is to stand in this this room among brothers and sisters, Your children, and praise You this morning, and to be reminded of the greatness of Your character in all of the universe, and to know that You have chosen us and have drawn near to us. And that you never forsake us, Father. Never will you leave us. Father, we pray out of great gratitude, a a cup that overflows our thankfulness for all of this. And it is also our prayer, Father, that we grow in our faith in order to bring great glory to you each and every day. And to this end, we ask that you give us eyes that see and ears that hear as we stand before this, this text and, and press our minds into it. Bless us in this time, Father. And we pray to be revolutionized, to be radically transformed in the way that we live our life because of these words. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As you know, Ellen and I were missionaries in Brazil for many years. During our our ministry in Brazil, one afternoon, a young man, a member of our church, came to our office in great distress. William was about our age. He had, uh, had come from the northeast part of Brazil and had escaped his home at the age of nine and had been living on the streets ever since making his way thousands of miles from the northeast part of Brazil to, to Brasilia, the center of the country where we were living. And he was not very well educated. He was not rich by anybody's standards. He was a very simple fellow, had a very simple worldview. And he had awakened that particular morning, and he had walked outside of this, this little house that he had built, And he found outside of that little house some feathers, a couple of candles, an empty bottle of homemade rum, all of these the unmistakable signs of macumba. That's uh, Brazil's form of, of their version of voodoo. There had been this macumba ceremony outside his house during the night. And the word in the neighborhood was that one of William's neighbors had gotten angry with him, had gotten very angry with him, and had hired a witch to use black magic to curse William into permanent bachelorhood. William would never have a a relationship with the opposite sex. Would never marry. How do you respond to that? I uh, Jokingly, I guess, well, William, you know, one man's curse is another man's blessing. (laughs) You know, the mother-in-law thing is not that great. Or you could be a little bit dismissive and try not to worry about it too much, William. I mean, it's just hocus-pocus. It's just too much nonsense. What do you think of the soccer game last night on television? Fortunately, we treated seriously and talked about how the Holy Spirit, who comes as a gift, dwells inside of a disciple, is stronger than the forces of darkness that are on the outside. But this event has always illustrated the great difference between Western culture in these matters and everyone else when it comes to talking about spiritual warfare. You know, talk of the devil, talk of spiritual warfare, that's not unusual in Latin America, not unusual in Africa, not unusual in Eastern cultures. But here where technology is, is, is a premium, where we're savvy with it, in this modern Western world, we struggle with this kind of worldview and So for the next couple of Sundays, we're going to break apart this text in Ephesians 6 and talk about what the Bible has to say about the invisible world, our interaction with it on a daily basis, and how it's described as warfare. And I want us to begin by revisiting a text that Everett just read for us just a minute ago, Ephesians chapter 6, the first two verses he read, verses 10 and 11. They're up on the screen. Finally. Finally. Be strong in the Lord and in His, what, church? Mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. If you've got an outline, I want you to write this down on your outline. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but spiritual forces of evil and wickedness. The devil. The devil's forces. And what Paul is saying here is not to say that evil does not take a flesh and blood form. Paul is not rejecting that at all, especially in light of the fact that he himself struggled with flesh and blood forms of this. Flesh and blood that flogged him and stoned him, imprisoned him and generally persecuted him in all of the ways that they could think of. Believe me, Paul was not against the flesh and blood version of evil too. But he is saying that the battle is not only not only flesh and blood, but with forces. These forces of evil that bring brutality and cruelty and bring greed and strife and racism and crime into the world. All of that is a flesh and blood form of something that is much more unnatural. What Paul is saying is that what's behind the flesh and blood evil is more than flesh and blood. And until we recognize this, you are not going to be able, we're not going to be able to recognize its depth or its pervasiveness or what at times seems to be its irtractability. But you know we have trouble with this in the Western modern mindset because we've been taught to think that everything in this world that takes place has a natural cause. And if there's a natural cause, then it can be given a scientific explanation. And if there's a scientific explanation, then we can fix it. What the modern world doesn't like is this term evil because it implies moral absolutes. What is preferred are terms like dysfunctional and sociological and psychological pathological pathology and quite frankly it's worn a bit thin all of this it's getting harder and harder to say that the Holocaust and the genocides and the ethnic cleansings and and the the rampant greed that we experience in the world are the product of people that grew up in dysfunctional families you know in the past I've referenced the work of Susan Neiman evil in, in modern thought who writes that the problem of evil is the greatest philosophical problem in the Western world. A contemporary of hers, Andrew Delbanco, wrote a book in the 1990s, The Death of Satan. Here is the opening line of this particular book. He says, you know, a gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. And then Delbanco, in the same section of the book, references a scene from the movie that came back out in the 1990s horrible movie, Silence of the Lambs, where this FBI agent by the name of Clarice Starling, she has finished kind of this initial interview, this initial meeting with the horrible Dr. Hannibal Lecter. And as she's walking away, she's going, what in the world happened to that guy? It's a mistake. Because Lecter hears her. And he says to her, and you know, I never can read this without hearing Anthony Hopkins' voice. He says to her, Nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I haven't. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. You've got everybody in moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me, Officer Starling. Can you stand to say, I am evil? And then Delbanco ends this section of the book with these words, and I quote, These words are an epitome of modern horror, the horror of knowing that we cannot answer the monster's question. The problem, friends, is bigger than a lack of education as the Holocaust being the product of the most educated and possibly the most cultured nation in Europe has shown." And the problem is bigger than inequities in the economic circles, uh, the the unequal economics, as Marxism has shown before being shelved in the 1990s. Susan Neiman and Andrew Delbanco say that philosophy doesn't have an answer. But the Bible, on the other hand, says that evil came out of a free will decision made by two different races of individuals. The supernatural Satan rejects God and then tips human beings to do the same. And now evil is in the heart and the soul of human beings. Christianity says that uh, psychological and sociological factors are there but only as an aggravation. They aggravate and shape the innate wickedness, the radical insecurity, and the awful self-centeredness, and the raw brutality that is seen in the world. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of wickedness. But then there's a second thing that Paul reminds us of in this text. Not only that there is a, a devil... And the devil's forces and and wickedness and evil, but that our enemy has an arsenal. He says in verse eleven, you can take your stand against the devil's what? Say it together. Schemes. In the old King Jimmy it says to stand against the wiles of the devil. Literally it reads, He has methods. He has methods. He has ways. It's important to know that the that Satan, that the devil has a portfolio. As Paul will say in another place, in Corinthians chapter two, verse eleven, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we're not unaware of his what? Church schemes. Now, what are these schemes? What are these methods? Let me suggest four. One is underestimation. One scheme is for us to underestimate the battle that we are up against on a daily basis. That is, we reduce the power of evil. Big mistake. Look back at verse 12. He says in verse 12, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. I want you to circle on your outlines or in your Bible that word struggle. In the original language, it's the word wrestle. It's, it, it's wrestling. It's hand to hand. Now you know as well as I do that, especially in a day like this, there are all kinds of forms of fighting. There are all kinds of forms of fighting where you fight at a distance. You throw rocks. You, throw, you, you shoot arrows at one another. Today it's bullets. It's missiles. It's missiles. But this is the word wrestle. And, and it, wrestling is different, is it not? It's, wrestling is on the ground. It, it, it's hand to hand. It's, it's the most intense life and death moment. It's this wrestling between two individuals on the ground. And this is the word that Paul uses to describe our confrontation with the forces of evil. It's a wrestling. It's a struggling. It's hand to hand. It's on the ground. It's intense. And to stress the point more, Paul racks up all of these really impressive, formidable terms to describe the enemy. It's against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world. It's against spiritual forces. We dare not underestimate what we face on a daily basis, church. But at the same time, the second would be overestimation. In verse 10 he says, Finally be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Now you drop down a couple of verses to verse 13 so that when the day comes, the day of evil comes, you may be able to what? Say it together, church, to what? Stand your ground and after you have done everything to what? Stand. Perhaps here is one of the greatest areas of weakness. I mean, we feel trapped by the same temptation. We become intimidated by what looks like this this invincible adversary that we face on a daily basis, and we reduce the spiritual resources that are available to to uh, each of us on a daily basis to fight this big mistake. And Paul says that you can stand. You don't have to be trapped. You don't have to feel like you're surrounded all of the time, that there are these resources that, sur- that are available on the inside of you and around you to help you deal with this wrestling. You can stand your ground. You know this, this word devil is diabolos. And you say, you know, I've heard that word before, and that where we get the word diabolical. And I would say, yes, but it's, it's, it's more than that. This diabolos is the noun form of the verb which means to lie or to slander, to, 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 to lie or to, to accuse. Now, the devil doesn't make a good person bad, I, I, I don't think. What the devil does is to take a flawed person and make that person worse. He aggravates what is already on the inside of you. How does he do that? Well, think about it. You, you go to Dr. Jeff Glass's home and you've got this, this beautiful baby grand piano and you decide to open up the lid to expose those strings and what you can do is you can speak, you can hum, you can, you can say, you can scream into that piano box and the string that is attuned to your voice is going to vibrate. Now, for a lot of us, it would be more than one string that would vibrate at the sound of our voice, at least in my own life. It's the same thing with our heart. You know, back in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes at the end of this long ethical list. He's, he's written in the first chapter all of the great things. It's, it, it, it looks like a, a, a three-verse hymn that ends each verse with, to the praise of His glory, the things that God has done, that Christ has done, that the Spirit has done. And in the second chapter, he talks about how all of this, in the second and the third chapter, about how all of this has become a sign of evil's defeat, that sin, the effects of sin are being reversed in, in, the, in the way that relationships are brought together because of the cross. That the, the, the effect of sin that forces us apart relationally inside of the church because of the cross, because of grace, the two men have now become one. And in chapter 3, he says, and when Satan and when darkness looks at the church, what God wants him to see is his defeat. That sin has been destroyed and the church, the way that we respond, the way that we react, the way that we relate to one another is a sign that the effects of sin are being reduced in our life because of the cross. And then the fourth chapter he says, you know what, that's, that's, that's a tall order though. And he begins to list all of these ethical things that, that Christians are to do when they, when they find themselves interacting with one another. And you get down to about verse 26, and He says, you know, in your anger, I don't want you to sin. In fact, don't let the sun go down while you're angry. Why does He give us this big list of things to do, of of ways to be? It's because, verse 27, you don't want to give the devil a what? A foothold. In other words, when His voice speaks to you, And in your heart, you feel the string begin to vibrate. You want to take note of that. You do not want to give Him a place to push you around. Which leads to a third way that the devil gets to us. Overestimation, underestimation, and thirdly, temptation. And here is where that voice speaks to you. It is here where the devil will lie to you. And the temptation he tries to hide from you God's holiness. And in so doing, he convinces you to do whatever it is that you want to whatever it is you want to do. Whatever it is that you feel like doing, whatever it speaks to your heart in that moment. That always, by the way, ends up in disaster. And he will show you the bait. But he'll hide the hook, which means that you see the pleasure, but not the pain. Or another way that he might convince you that. That, that this is okay, is that sin is really a virtue. You might say, you know, I'm not really very greedy. I'm just thrifty. I'm a good saver. Or somebody might say, you know, I'm, 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 I'm not a gossip. I just like to talk about people. <laughs> or the devil might demonstrate how bad people have good lives. That's part of the temptation. That somehow God's holiness and His love has been, has been held from you. And you think to yourself, look at all the bad people out there. They're not living like I do. And they've got all of this great stuff that's being poured out on top of them. Why do I play by the rules when it doesn't pay off? I might as well do it too. Or he might dupe you into comparing points of your life. You know, we, we segment our life and then we compare different points. I mean, the, the illustration here is, the, the classic one is the Mafia hitman. Yes, I kill people but I'm good to my mom. But not only is the devil a liar, he's also an accuser. Which is the last, the last strategy this morning. is accusation. And this is a gigantic one. Let me give you some examples. One way this works is when he gets you to focus more on the sin than on the Savior. And he makes you answer the question, How could God ever love somebody like you? After the thought life, after the the kinds of things that you have done, the kinds of thoughts that you have had. This many times is why we can't forgive ourselves. It's because we're listening to Him accused rather than God saying we're forgiven. And thereby we stunt the joy of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Or He might convince you that the trouble you're having in, in life is punishment from God. Suffering means that you're bad. And not only that you're bad, but that God is mad at you. That God is angry with you, and that's why you're experiencing all of these things. And you come under that kind of accusation. Or am I convince you that these inner struggles that you're having are not what real Christians have. That why am I struggling with this temptation to lust? Real Christians don't, don't go through that. Or why am I having these, these thoughts of anger and the, the thoughts of revenge inside of me when I know that real Christians, at least the ones that I seem to go to church with, don't seem to struggle with these kinds of things? What we've got to remember is that Satan is playing us. That Satan is playing me. That Satan is playing you. He is vibrating the strings. And that is what we're fighting. That is what we're fighting. Now... In the next couple of Sundays, we're going to look at the spiritual armor and these sorts of things. But if there's one thing to to, to go from this place this morning, it's the knowledge that there is this battle, the spiritual warfare that we fight on a daily basis. And that it's not something that you're ill-equipped for or something that you should be ill-confident in entering into. You know, one of the most beautiful passages in the entire of, of all the things that Paul has written that him in Philippians chapter two, where it says that, that Christ did not count equality with God something to, to be grasped, to be held on to, but he opened his hand and he went through the process of the incarnation so that he could live with us. He opened his hands in order for us never to be plucked from his. And He lived the life that we should have lived and He died the death that we should have died. Because the one thing that brought Him out of heaven, it wasn't, think of all of the things that that Christ had in heaven, the perfect harmony, the perfect union, the perfect love, the perfect relationship with with the triune God, the, the holiness, the beauty, the majesty of it all. And yet there was something, there was something that He was willing to leave all of that for. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says that he was able to endure the cross because of what that was set before him? The joy. Do you know what that is? You. You. Because of love, because he had to have you, he lived the life that you should have lived, died the death that you should have died. And he became forsaken so that you would never have to experience that. That judgment and every day before that, even as you go into this battle every day, never alone, never forsaken, never left. He became naked on the cross in order for you and for me to be clothed with the armor of God. As we take our stand, and He came and He died for all of for the, the, the forgiveness of our sins, of things that, that Satan has ha, accuses us of even to this day. For all of that to be put behind us as we face God squarely and as disciples move toward Him on a day-to-day basis. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. And, and, and maybe there are just some things that are going on in your life right now that are not very positive. And you feel like the temptation's there or the accusations are there. Maybe you've been overestimating and underestimating the, 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 the resources that are available to you. And what you need is to be reminded of that in the prayers of the congregation, the prayers of your shepherds to strengthen you in this thing. Or it might be that you've never, you've never overcome the kingdom of darkness, have never been transferred out of darkness into light because you've never given yourself completely to Jesus. The time to do that is this morning. Right now. To confess that He is Lord. To choose Him. The the biblical word is repentance, but you're choosing Him day by day by day from here on out. To to have your sins washed away by participating in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The Spirit of God coming to live inside of you. Living each day with that resource as you're radically revolutionized, transformed into the likeness of Jesus every, every day. With joy, with joy, it's inexpressible peace that passes understanding with a blessedness and a, and a sense of confidence and a strength and a power that is, well, sometimes it just can't be described. It has to be caught. If that describes you this morning, some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. We'd love for you to make that change today. You can do it now as we stand and sing together. Oh, in my way.